You're listening to an Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting earlier today. The pace of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the number economy. of Fed officials. The shadow banking system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Welcome to another Economy Matters podcast. I'm Tom Heinches, managing editor of the Atlanta Fed's Economy Matters magazine. And today we're joined by Mike Johnson, Executive Vice President of Supervision and Regulation at the Atlanta Fed. As 2017 winds down, we thought it would be a good time to have Mike back on the podcast to take a look at the year in banking. Mike, it's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Always great to be here. Uh, Mike, let's look back at the year in banking from the from the thirty thousand foot level, and we'll get into the nitty gritty a little later. Uh, how would you generally characterize the southeastern banking industry in two thousand seventeen? Well, Tom, coming from the depths of the crisis, I'm glad to say that I would describe it as stable, right? Continuing to improve and uh, consolidate. We saw some slowing loan growth in the third quarter. Uh, do you think this is a, a transitory event, a sort of a, a blip on the radar screen? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. We certainly did. But time will tell, obviously, whether it's transitory or just a pause. If it's a pause, I actually don't think that that's a bad thing. Remember, over the long horizon, loan growth frankly, can is should grow at about the same level as GDP, right? Right. Um, so loan growth previously was pretty robust across almost all loan segments, whether it's retail, commercial, uh, commercial real estate, and so on. So a little bit of a pause is probably not a bad thing at this point in time. Right. Uh, but something to keep our eye on, you know, for the for the future, again, because of that tight correlation to, to GDP. Yeah. If, if it's a bit of a pause, basically to make sure that we're not loosening underwriting standards, that we're lending is responsive to reasonable demand. I think it's a, I think it's a good thing. Right. Well, did you observe this? Uh, I'll say slower loan growth across banks of all sizes, or was it peculiar to one segment of banks versus others? Or how how would you characterize that? Yeah. So it pretty much across the board, banks of all sizes, and actually, what's kind of interesting was across pretty much all loan categories as well. So community banks and large banks, they tend to have a little bit of a different loan mix, but we did see a little slowing in loan growth in the last quarter across both both of them. Why? Because there were slowing, as I said earlier, both in wholesale and retail segments. Right. Now, again, also remember that that slowing, for most part, was a slowing in growth not necessarily an aggregate right, that, slowdown in lending That's overall. a great distinction. Right. Yeah, I think that's important to keep in mind. Right. Uh, well, Mike, how would you generally assess uh, credit risk for banks these days? Uh, we're all aware of the, the pounding that banks took on commercial real estate during the recession. But how does the CRE segment look to you currently? So the good news is with respect to CRE is I think we as regulators and, of course, the banks that we supervise – learned a lesson and are sticking, for the most part, to the learnings from that lesson. Right. I hope I said that in a relatively (laughs) intelligent manner. Uh, So I think we're still seeing uh, a lot better underwriting, a lot better credit risk management practices, uh, strengthen limits, strengthen sublimits, if you will. So 
breaking commercial real estate down into its various segments, whether that be multifamily, warehouse, things of that nature, and then having limits within that. A lot better market analysis and changing to the mix of loans that institutions are willing to underwrite based on that market analysis. So I think the fundamental uh, underwriting standards and lessons learned, uh, we're really seeing that those are that banks are sticking to those. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a few exceptions here and there, but I think that's a, that's a real positive for the industry. Then the other question is, so what's happening in commercial real estate markets themselves? Right. And I think that's a little bit of a, a mixed question because, of course, it depends on what product type you're in and sure. what market you're in. Sure, one size doesn't in. fit all. Right, yeah. so one size doesn't fit all. You know, there's a few markets and a few segments that we're kind of keeping our eyes on, you know, markets that tend to be higher growth, I think, for the most part, justified by fundamentals, but you really have to keep your eyes on it because those fundamentals can shift pretty quickly. Sure, sure. Keeping in mind the lessons we've recently learned, too. (laughs) You betcha. You bet. So I want to turn from that segment to another important uh, bank segment, and that is auto lending. I occasionally read references to auto lending levels being quite high. How would you characterize the auto lending segment? Quite high. Yeah. <laughs> Simply put. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think you, you, you've read uh, – what you've read has been accurate. Of course, that's a function of auto sales having been quite high, and somebody's got to finance that. So, but that in and of itself, as long as it's reasonable loan demand that is effectively underwritten – is not a bad thing, right? Right. So, uh, so I think for the most part, it's been positive. But there are a few concerns that we've been watching. Uh, one, it goes back to the fundamentals of underwriting, lending tenors, basically how the duration of the loan itself tend to be getting longer. Yeah. Which is a bit of a mixed bag because cars are actually lasting longer. So, uh, so that's something that we're watching. FICO scores are going lower, so banks are tending to go down the a little bit lower in the credit box, what, if what, you will. What can we infer from that, if anything? Uh, I think we can infer from that, that that there still remains a robust demand for new and used cars across all segments of the population. And... The maybe, however, is if you want to continue to grow loans in the auto space, um, you have to ensure that you're serving all segments of the, the population, sure. including those lower FICO bands. But as banks move down that space, they are actually taking on more credit risk. And, you know, it's our job to make sure that that, again, is effectively underwritten, that there's strong risk management practices in place, that they're doing this, um, ensuring that pricing is appropriate and there's an appropriate return on that, so on. But those are things that, that we're watching. And I would also add in this, in, with the increase in auto lending, particularly in indirect auto lending, an area that, you know, we have seen some pockets of concerns is fair lending. So think of indirect auto this way. Somebody else is actually has the direct interface with the customer mm-hmm. and making sure that there are no intended or unintended biases built into that decision. Right. That's part of the bank's responsibility. Sure. And, you know, that's something that we look at very closely. 
we have high expectations in that regard, and uh, we're really keeping a pretty strong eye on in the auto lending space. That's interesting. I didn't know that our supervisors looked at that particular aspect of, of the lending market. Right. So bear in mind that we look at institutions both from a safety and soundness perspective, as well as compliance with laws, regulations, including consumer protection laws. Right. Great. Uh, Well, Mike, I want to get your attention turned to uh, changes in interest rates. Over the last year or so, we've seen some increases in interest rates. I wonder what effect these increases have had on banks' margins. I I assume naturally it's benefited them, yes? Yes. Uh, Banks have positioned themselves for the positive effects of a rise in interest rates uh, for quite some time, yes, they've been waiting, <laughs> they've been for, waiting this. for this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's uh, uh, and it, and it's been very beneficial. You can actually see the direct correlation between this slow and gradual rise in interest rates uh, with banks' net interest margins, particularly at the community bank level, which tends to be more sensitive to to that approach. The larger banks have more options and often manage themselves closer to a neutral neutral position. But yeah, it's been it's been very very positive. But one interesting thing on the the interest rate piece that uh, we are keeping our eye on, but we haven't seen happen yet, mm-hmm. is actually the impact on the deposit side, right? So as interest rates rise, clearly the the goal here is that the spread between your loans and your deposits increases, and a bank can have a higher net interest income. But there's two sides to that equation. There's the liability deposit side as well. We haven't really seen the interest rate rises pass through to that piece of the equation yet. We're keeping our eye on it. Why are we keeping our eye on it? Well, one, there's the earnings piece, but also there's the liquidity implications of doing that. So you can envision a scenario where you might have some pricing competition. Sure. And that pricing competition, depending on which side you're on, uh, and which what trade-off decisions you want to make because it has an implication for earnings could also have an implication for liquidity and whether those deposits stay or leave. Right. Is this something you think banks can look forward to in terms of the, the changes in the deposit side or is it just uh, something that they're monitoring or – yeah, it's it's interesting. So nobody really knows. We're actually in uncharted waters yeah. with uh, interest rates as low as they have been for so long. Right. So forecasting customer behavior, you know, your forecast is probably as good as mine because yeah. we haven't been here before. Uh, but if we return to an interest rate environment that we saw, you know, 10, 15 years ago, which one would describe as, well, one one our age might describe as right, more normal. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, and we'd be more into chartered waters at that point. Yeah, we'd be more back into chartered waters, and back in those chartered waters, the mix of core deposits versus higher end time money market deposits, things of that nature. If it reverts back to pre-crisis levels, that's going to have a dramatic impact on earnings and the overall benefit of a rising rate environment. Could find itself re- reversing pretty quick. Well, next time you're on here, we'll look back at this conversation and see where things stand. <laughs> Mike, I know you talk to bankers all the time, and, and so does your staff. When, and when you talk to them, uh, what concerns do you hear expressed on, on sort of a regular basis? Are there any common themes that they talk about in terms of their concerns? Oh, there's huge common themes, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, it's a great question. So it's compliance costs, compliance costs, and 
if you spend more time with them, more compliance costs. Right. You so know, there's the, a real unanimous feeling there. Right. Right. Uh, you know, so the in a you know obviously there's more rules in a post Dodd Frank environment, but there's also uh, more rules that have been promulgated. For example, by the CFPB, which was created out of Dodd Frank. So we hear compliance cross pretty much a, across the board, but if I was going to be very specific, uh, mortgage is an example where some banks have actually, you know, exited the business hmm. because with higher compliance costs, you basically have to do a certain volume, have a certain economies of scale in order to justify being in that business these days. That's a drastic step. Yeah, yeah it is. It is. And that... You know, I, I think the rules were all, you know, very well-intentioned, but there are, you know, implications from that. And I think it's incumbent upon us, and when I say us, the collective, you know, government and regulatory regime to continue to look at that and make sure that the costs and benefits are appropriately in alignment. Right. Well, Mike, I asked you in here to take a look back at 2017 and one of the stories of 2017 was was the very exceptionally active hurricane season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, hurricane Irma made landfall in our district, and, and Harvey affected Houston and the nearby Gulf region. Uh, what were the effects of, of hurricanes on banks in the region? I, w- I would guess that southeastern banks have gotten pretty experienced at dealing with the aftermath, making cash available to the public and so forth. Uh, what did you hear? Yeah, well, uh, that clearly is part of the storyline of 2017, isn't it? So first and foremost, I I would agree with you that unfortunately banks have a lot of experience in dealing with natural disasters, including hurricanes. But the good news is they've learned from that those experiences, right. and I think their response, frankly, has been tremendous. Yeah. You know, so so what do you what are what are some of the immediate concerns? You know, with respect to a hurricane, access to uh, public services, and in many ways, banking institutions are that public service, uh, particularly when there's power outages. Access to cash uh, becomes king. I've heard nothing but really positive, glowing stories about our banks and their ability to uh, maintain their facilities, deliver cash, respond to meet other lending needs in the post-aftermath of of hurricanes. Uh, so I really, really want to emphasize and support and thank uh, the industry for the response. It just shows you what an important component the financial services sector is to the overall health of both individuals and the economy at large. You know, having said that, you typically see a spike in problem loans Mm -hmm. right after a hurricane, but typically then would also see that being made up over the longer term horizon as new construction comes in, as insurance claims are met, uh, and things of that nature. So loan demand kind of makes up for the the initial problem assets. In these two hurricanes, the amount of forecasted problems, uh, we still need more time to determine uh, the actual results, but the initial forecasted problems and out-of-the-box loan loss provisioning expenses have been relatively low. 
That's good. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I didn't really read any reports of people not being able to access cash or liquidity this time. So it was. It seems like people really have their chops down in, in terms of these catastrophic events that we occasionally encounter. Yeah, I think the biggest question is uh, just the physical logistics. Yeah. And, for example, I know when the Florida Keys was hit very, very hard and how to get in and out of the keys, there's only one way in and one way out. Sure. And when that's shut down, it's pretty hard to get cash down there. So that, that took a few days. But once the physical logistics can be overcome, you know, I think the the preparedness really shines through. Yeah. Well, Mike, I want to switch gears a little and, and get you to talk a bit about uh, cybersecurity, which is a very hot topic in, in your industry. Can you discuss the role of cybersecurity specifically as it applies to banks? I mean, we hear so much about hacking and breaches and the bad actors are only getting more inventive. How do you see the Fed's perspective on banking and cybersecurity having evolved over the years? Yeah, well, we can go in many directions and we can have yeah. an entire lengthy podcast on the, on, on this I question, I might help you do that, so be careful. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that wasn't an offer. It was just a, a, a comment. But uh, no, we, can, we can do that. You know, what's, what's interesting about cybersecurity is you, you have so many different types. You, you kind of asked about kind of bank's role. Well, one type is theft and fraud. Right, banks still, you know, why why do you rob the bank? Because that's where the money is. Sure. Well, you still have the same component as it relates to hacking into a bank, taking control of accounts, etc. But also customer fraud, where it may be easier to hack a bank customer, but then spoof that customer in a way that causes the customer to request, for example, maybe a wire transfer. And the bank is the conduit for that, even though the bank itself wasn't wasn't hacked. Right. Right. So you have the fraud piece, which could be a bank specific piece or a bank customer piece, but funds flow through the bank, and the bank's part of, part of that process. Then you have you know the the larger data breaches and data hacks and so on that banks have to continue to remain diligent. Uh, with regard to. They're dealing with these threats from multiple dimensions. And I heard somebody say this a while back, and uh, so I've kind of latched on to it. I hope people don't cringe when I say this, but I think cybersecurity is kind of like Y2K. You remember that? Mm, sure. But it's Y2K with no end date. Right, right. right. <laughs> and you Y2K know. ended up being sort of a non-event, which this is not a non-event. This is real. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a real event. Yeah, once again, we can go back and debate Y2K, but it ended up, I think, because of a lot of work and preparedness being a non-event. And I hope for most banks, cyber is that same thing because of work and preparedness. Now, our focus as supervisors, we're obviously not the technicians, and right. uh, you know, not not. Uh, involved in looking at settings on specific servers or things of that nature. But we want to make sure that there's an appropriate risk management framework in place to deal with cyber, you know, that deals with preventative, detective, and corrective controls, um, just like we would any other type of operational risk. Right. Well, actually, that segues perfectly to my next question, which is, 
Uh, while we're talking about uh, the risk posed by cybercrime, I wanted to ask you, what does good risk management in general look like to a, a bank supervisor? Yeah, well, that's a great question again. And uh, I think you can pretty much take, you know, cyber, credit risk, everything, and, and think of it in the same same spectrum. So to a certain extent, there there may be multi-dimensions to this. So I already mentioned preventative, detective, and corrective controls. Mm-hmm. That's probably one easy way of thinking about more operational risk-type elements. But I think the most important thing that, that we as supervisors, frankly, are looking for mm-hmm. in terms of risk management is a risk management program that is self-sustaining and proactive. In other words, does the, the institution itself have the ability to identify issues and concerns, to implement corrective actions relative to those issues and concerns, and to be self-reflective around those issues and concerns and look across the enterprise to see whether there's other gaps? That, pro, that proactive piece is something that I think is really important. So you look at self-identification, self-correcting, self-reflective is another way to kind of think about a good, robust risk management system. But there's also the tone from the top that drives it and makes it all work. And that's what's the overall institution's risk tolerance, what's the board of directors and senior management's risk tolerance for the firm, how does that risk tolerance flow through decision-making when it comes to new products and new services, changing market conditions and market dynamics, things of that nature. But the watchword that I would put out there is a proactive risk management system as opposed to a reactive one. Yeah, I I guess getting back to your Y2K analogy, the the hard part would be never becoming complacent, I guess. Exactly, exactly. Because when you're complacent, that's when... That's when something bad can happen. Yeah, so, th- so take that example and, and apply the word proactive to it. The threat environment and the threat landscape is constantly changing. Right. So how you approach it from a risk management standpoint has to also be constantly changing and adapting. Otherwise, you do become complacent. The world changes, moves past you, and you're, you're exposed. Right. There you go. Well, I, Mike, I know I asked you to come on here to talk about the past year, but um, I'm going to ask you if, if you're willing to, to take out your crystal ball for a moment and look at 2018. Do you see 2018 being overall a, a continuation of trends we've observed in 2017? Is, is there anything in particular you'll be keeping your eye on in the year ahead? Yeah, well, that's a great question, Tom. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. If I had a crystal ball, I might not be working here. (laughs) But but I do think in many ways it it will be a continuation. Now, I can't predict uh, legislative initiatives. I can't predict things like tax policy and so on. Uh, but from a risk standpoint, as we think about it, you know, cyber is our number one risk that we're focused on. It's the number one risk at almost every institution we talk about. I don't think that's changing. Right. Banks need to continue to focus on credit risk management and underwriting standards because also I'm not going to take out a crystal ball and predict where the economy is going to go. Sure. Uh, other people at the Fed have that job. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, you know, so I think that's important to us. We already touched on a little bit of uh, commercial real estate, some of the, you know, retail components, auto, 
credit card, things of that nature would be on the radar screen. But again, these are more in that continuation piece. The one thing that I would throw out there, though, from the Fed standpoint, we do have a new vice chair of supervision in uh, Randall Quarles. Right, in Washington. In Washington. And we will, assuming Governor Powell is confirmed and becomes Chairman Powell, uh, have new leadership there. So I think in this theme of continuation, I've had the privilege of working with Governor Powell for a while now and, you know, have met but don't know Vice Chair Quarles very well, but I think uh, really looking forward to, to working with them, that where I'm going with this is I think they're very focused on continuing to review what's been put in place in a post-Dodd-Frank environment, making sure that it's effectively tailored for the institutions that we supervise and that we have an appropriate supervisory regime for the times. Right. And uh, I, I think those are the right things to focus on. Right, right. I, th- I think that's very well said. Uh, well, Mike, I want to thank you again for speaking with us today, and, and thanks for sharing your thoughts. It's been really interesting. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of another episode of the Economy Matters podcast. Again, I'm Tom Heinges, Managing Editor of Economy Matters magazine, and I've been speaking with Mike Johnson, Executive Vice President over Supervision and Regulation at the Atlanta Fed. I encourage you to visit our digital magazine, Economy Matters, at frbatlanta.org. There you'll find a great deal of banking information, including a brand new edition of Viewpoint from Mike's Supervision and Regulation Division, which offers a very nice snapshot of current banking conditions. And lastly, I hope you'll join us next month when we discuss workforce development with Stuart Andresen, director of the Atlanta Fed's new center, the Center for Workforce and Economic Opportunity. I hope you'll be here for that conversation. And from all of us here at the Atlanta Fed, I hope you have a very happy new year. See you in 2018. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.